Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Whoop Podcast, where we sit down with top athletes, scientists, experts, and more to learn what the best in the world are doing to perform at their peak and what you can do to unlock your own best performance. I'm Robert Moeller, Associate Vice President here at Whoop for Government, and I'll be sitting in for Will Ahmed this week. On this week's episode, we're taking a look at the United States Coast Guard, more specifically, how their helicopter pilots and air crews use WHOOP to mitigate risk while also helping keep our service men and women safe. The Coast Guard mission is critical. As a service member, there's no better feeling than serving the community, and the Coast Guard answers that call 24 hours a day, seven days a week. So today, I'm sitting down with Coast Guard Commander Scott Austin for a discussion on leadership, performance, and how WHOOP data can be used to help our service women and men. Commander Scott Austin is based in Port Angeles, Washington, and recently completed a study with Coast Guard members that evaluated how perceived levels of readiness compared to actual physiological readiness. So think how tired do you feel versus how tired are you really from a physiological standpoint. He talks about what he learned about his team as a commanding officer, a position of leadership, and what his crew members learned about their human systems, i.e. themselves, by learning to trust their WHOOP data. Commander Austin and I discuss the role the Coast Guard plays in not only search and rescue, but also other Coast Guard missions most people do not typically ever hear about. Why the sleep deprivation culture is one of our greatest threats to safety and physical and mental well-being of our service members. Scott will also tell us about the many stressors and fatigue Coast Guard aviators experience on a daily basis. We also discuss how leadership can only smartly manage what is measured when it comes to a more ready and resilient Coast Guard force. And lastly, but very critically, why the military, more specifically the United States Coast Guard, thought WHOOP would be a perfect fit for this government study. As a reminder, you can get 15% off a WHOOP membership by using the code WILL, W-I-L-L, or Whiskey India Lima Lima for all our government folks over at WHOOP.com. Here is Commander Scott Austin of the United States Coast Guard. Scott, welcome to the WHOOP podcast. How are you, buddy? Hey, doing great. How about you? Good. And for everybody that's listening today, we are going to be talking about the WHOOP, but more importantly, WHOOP within the United States Coast Guard and how Scott had a really interesting journey around trust, community, and education. So Scott, I think it'll be really good for our listeners to understand how this whole thing came about and how you ended up you know, coming to WHOOP and what you wanted to see around the technology, but more importantly, what you learned from your individuals that became part of the WHOOP community, but more important, started using WHOOP in their daily lives. Can we start with why? What was the driving factor around you as leadership? And, and maybe you want to tell people you know, where you sit and what seat you're sitting in as far as leadership goes inside of the United States Coast Guard. I was sitting in, in kind of two seats. One was an executive officer, uh, so the number two guy working at a uh, Coast Guard air station in the Pacific Northwest mm-hmm. that primarily does search and rescue work. So for folks that aren't familiar with the Coast Guard, it's kind of a firehouse model. We have crews sitting around waiting for the alarm to go off at our particular unit. And then when the alarm does go off, they're there kind of for 24 hours. And then regardless of where they're at uh, in that 24-hour period, they launch and go. When yes, you say sir. you're on that 24-hour alert, the mission set, especially in the Pacific Northwest, it's super cold for everybody listening internationally. Some of the temperatures that you guys are are getting exposed to when you guys work and is that has that been a factor and how have you thought about that from a leadership standpoint well temperatures for uh we're basically we refer to ourselves here uh we're in port angeles washington 
Okay. Uh, we refer to ourselves kind of as Alaska light. So we're not quite up in, in Kodiak and the tundra, but sure. basically we get down into the very low, you know, near zero. Uh, right now, I think it's four degrees outside today. We're, we're in a bit of a cold snap. It's actually pretty temperate where we're at, but uh, depending on our mission, one of the challenges that we see is uh, one, our days are very short. Uh, mm-hmm. So there's not a lot of light right uh uh for this portion of the year in the winter and then a lot of our missions we don't just do people think of the coast guard and you're going to go get out on the water and pick somebody up right uh, but a lot of our missions are up you know in the mountains and the cascades up in the olympic mountains having to to pick people up that have either gotten stranded or hurt in all manner of, of areas which is a very unique thing for for our particular unit it's really critical for people to know it's not that you're just getting on a boat and going to pick up somebody that, you know, the mom and pop that are out and their and their boat broke down. You know, that search and rescue mission for your unit when it comes to the aviation side and dropping individuals into the forest to go pick something up, is, is that part of the mission? Uh, absolutely. Our rescue swimmers, uh, which is another area that we're wearables are going to be helping us uh, looking into our training and preparing folks. Not only do we do we take them out into the, you know, sub freezing uh, ocean, but we take them off and some instances we have to leave them up uh, on a mountaintop or just, you know, conduct an extremely high hoist. Could be from a cliffside, uh, places like that. And then search and rescue is just kind of one of the missions. It's just where I'm at right now. We also do very unique from from what people might think of when they think of the Coast Guard, the unit I was at prior to here, a helicopter interdiction uh, unit. So we go off to the south of the United States, mm-hmm. uh, go fast vessels that are trying to bring drugs up through transit right. zones. So we'll, we'll fly off in the middle of the night and, and shoot some of those guys' uh, engines uh, so that we can, we can stop them. Uh, yeah, very important to clarify what we're shooting there. Uh, so we're just uh, disabling the vessels uh, so that our guys on the ground and girls on the ground can hop on and, uh, and interdict that contraband that's trying to make right. its way north. And then we also do a mission in D.C. where we protect the national airspace 24-7. And so all those things kind of say like, hey, you got to be ready anytime, day or night in Coast Guard aviation in different formats. So there's definitely a need there. It's inherent to kind of figure out. And we've been looking at it as long as aviation exists. That was a big part of my study. Sure. Hey, how can we figure out how to make sure that people that are doing these types of missions are the most ready when it comes to fatigue to be able to do this dangerous stuff as safely as possible? Yeah. And that's one of those things, Scott, when you first came to us on the Whoop Tactical side, I was super excited to hear that a group like yours, Coast Guard Aviation, especially with such a dynamic mission set, you know, you're doing the counter narco stuff right off the coast of of Florida and some other places. But then at the same time, you know, somebody in your group is doing, you know, high angle rescue hoists in the Pacific Northwest of the United States, super dynamic. And like you mentioned before, what does readiness look like, whether it's in the Pacific Northwest, but more importantly, what does readiness look like if it's going to be a jack of all trades and a master of none. Meaning, you know, these these people in the United States are relying on the Coast Guard, not because, you know, they know they're going to get themselves into a situation where they're going to need help. This mission is a little bit more advanced than your local, let's just say, fire and rescue from the local fire department or police department. I mean, this is this is highly trained. They're flying at night with, with night vision on. And we're talking about most all weather conditions. I mean, these guys and girls are doing something extremely dynamic, extremely dangerous. And they really don't have much room to make mistakes. That all said, when Scott came to us at Whoop Tactical and said, hey, we think we can learn a lot by putting this technology on our aviators, we were absolutely thrilled and, and we were all in. Scott, focusing on that, you as as leadership sitting in the exo seat that you're in right now, when you first came to us and, and really wanted to pull apart how we could better learn, you know, the individual aviator, but more importantly, how you could take that information and start making smarter decisions from the leadership perspective. What drove that thought? 
for you? And and how did you end up coming to Whoop? Why Whoop, more importantly? And what were you trying to get from the individual data that you were trying to get from the study that you ended up doing? We've been, you know, fatigue is nothing new to aviation, right? Uh, so we've known that this is a thing since the beginning. First planes that go back to the, you know, just after the Wright brothers, I mean, sure. we started flying planes. We said, hey, you should probably be awake when you're doing this. You know, some of that's common sense. Right. Sometimes. In academia, right? <laughs> but the, the thing we have in policy, because basically because we didn't have the ability until right. uh, fairly recently sure. to actually track this type of data. We have multiple sensors, redundant sensors on every portion of the aircraft that right. we fly except the air crew. And just to stop on the floor, get to the top of the mountain and highlight what Scott is saying is that we have these highly, highly trained helicopter pilots, male and female, doing their job every day. And there's checks and balances for them to take off, land and everything else in between. For the individual to stand up in a room inside of that organization and say, hey, everybody, the dogs were up last night. My infant was crying. My wife is sick. I can fly today, but I just want to let you know that my self-assessment is here, here, and here. Scott, can you pull that apart a little bit more and talk about generally the aviation community and how the technology has now caught up with the aviation community to where you can actually make smarter decisions on the individual basis using something like Whoop, or also allow leadership to make smarter decisions based off of the technology that you're employing now? When I was thinking about how I wanted to study this, so you, you go to a pre-flight brief. Uh, so in, in Coast Guard aviation in particular, in aviation in general, but in Coast Guard aviation in particular, we have a pretty fantastic culture whenever it comes to aviation safety, operate ORM, we call it operational risk management. So that process that we go through a very standardized discussion before any time you get in the aircraft. Right. And you have that, you talk about every aspect of the mission and the risk that applies to it. And, and one of those specific things is both, you know, the pilots and the air crew. And you talk about, Hey, how are you functioning? Like, how did you sleep? Did you get enough sleep? And our policy, I, I was talking about earlier in our doctrine, it basically says every person that gets the aircraft has a moral responsibility to make sure that they show up rested. And can we talk about um, that real quick, not to interrupt your flow here? Yeah, no. But moral responsibility. You know, I, I think all of us that have served or are serving currently right now, that term moral responsibility resonates deeply, deeply. Right. Because again, right. it's about the men and women to the left and right of you. At least, you know, during my time in service, and Scott, I'm sure you feel the same way, is you truly have that moral responsibility to, to raise your hand and say, hey, I'm not okay. And this is what I think is best for the mission, again, against that operational risk management piece. So mm-hmm. I, I appreciate you saying that. I think we should highlight that more, especially in the different communities that are always like, hey, we're going to we're gonna go no matter what. Mm-hmm. But making smart decisions, whether it's subjective self-reporting or using technology, that's where they really come together. And because that moral responsibility is a big deal. And, it's a and, huge deal. And as an as a XO, that's one of the points that I got to is we tell people that they have this moral responsibility, but science has shown that you don't necessarily know when right. you're that fatigued. So right. we put these people in a really frustrating position and, and we can kind of create a culture that's really, that really sets people up a little bit for failure. So You look at other studies, you see that the vast majority of people in our culture, just American culture, go there first. You see the vast majority of people are sleep deprived. Right. Um, Right. And then, and then, you know, we're, we're not that special. We love to think that we're special, but we're not that special. We're still, you know, (laughs) a subset of that culture. Right. 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 
Uh, and so you look, there was a Tufts study, mm-hmm. uh, that the, a small thesis that came out a few years ago. They, right. they surveyed Coast Guard air crews. I think 70% of the air crews had said that they had flown fatigued in like more than 10 times, like 99, some 90% had right. said that they had flown fatigued within like the last 10 days or six months. Now, let me ask you this uh, as a, as an aviator, and I know you're sitting in the exo role, but you obviously spent time, you know, getting in, in the helicopter, not fatigued and fatigued when mm-hmm. you're at that moment where, you know, you're a little tired or where you feel, Hey, you know, I, I, I feel okay. And this is with no technology in place. What mm-hmm. was your true North as far as looking at your teammates in the moment, I have this more responsibility. What's that conversation like? Because you mentioned that you have a really good community of, of folks willing to talk about that. And that's massive. Some communities are not because a lot of communities right. do not stand up and say, hey, I'm I'm tired today. Oh, 100 uh, percent. And that's where the, the the crew endurance program at NPS has been great, because I may be biased coming from the aviation world. But but I think aviation, again, somewhat because of the stakes uh, that are at play. Hey, you, you know, right. if, if you're sleeping, you bump something with a boat, some things can go bad. If you're sleeping, you bump something with an airplane. It's usually the ground. And that's right. kind of it for you. Within our community, like those conversations, they start one. It's it's a, like you said, it's community. It's about building culture. Right. Sure. Um, so culturally. We, we have a very no fault realm and crew resource management, you know, is a, is a thing that gets talked about. Uh, a lot of buzzwords get thrown out, but the bottom line is we've created a culture where people can be honest and vulnerable enough that the most junior person in any air crew that I've been on could call me out at any point, whether I was the, the lieutenant junior pilot or if I'm flying now. And I, we have the culture where I will say, hey guys, like you said earlier, hey, the kids kept me up. I'm a little bit tired. And the key there is that accountability uh, that goes into the culture of saying like, hey, you know, what? if if you think I'm tired, then I'm tired. Right. Uh, if I'm doing something that makes you think because, you know, it, you're the one that's strapped in in the back or in the other seat. You know, what I do is going to immediately impact your life <laughs> right. in a monumental way. Right. Scott's job function for, you know, the civilians listening to this is he's the one piloting the helicopter. However... Scott, how many people at any given time do you have in the back who are entrusting their lives to you to make the right decisions every second of, of, of the mission? Uh, usually two to four on a, a two on a, an operational flight could be up to four on a, some right. sort of training mission, plus anybody that we've rescued right. uh, at that point that is not there voluntarily. <laughs> right. Just to pull apart a little bit what Scott is saying here is that there are at least at a minimum of four other people, five other people relying on his ability to have that moral fortitude to stand up in the pre-mission brief during the RMs and say, hey, listen, I'm a little fatigued. I you know, feel this way. However, this is what I'm recommending. And there's checks and balances in place. What also highlighting, and this is amazing that you have, I didn't know that a lot of military organizations or a lot of service-oriented organizations, you are not allowed to call out leadership because they have the experience, they have the hours, the flight hours, whatever it may be. And a true, and this is a testament to you, Scott, not to blow smoke here, but you know, when leadership allows anybody from the most junior grade officer or, or enlisted individual to say, hey, I feel this is unsafe. I'm calling it out. And it is actually taken on board and listened to. That drives culture and it drives oh, yeah. safety and it drives trust. And that's what we're really focusing on here. And, and like we said earlier in the podcast, you know, that community trust and education around being able to stand up and say, hey, we all have this moral obligation to each other to ensure that we're ready and what does readiness really feel like for the individual, but also as a team? I was going to say, the teams call it a, 
teams guys call it situational subordination whenever I used to be able to, to work with them. And it, right. it like you're smiling. It, it goes along. Like that's what builds the trust. When you're tapped, you're going to tell me right. uh, and not until then you're not going to, you're not going to use that card lightly. And that is one of those things that truly does gain the trust of the individuals around you. Because at the end of the day, if even if you're out on a training mission, Scott, and I don't know if this has ever happened to you and it turns into a real world mission because you got the call or something's just going wrong in the aircraft. Now this is potentially a seriously dangerous training initiative. You never know is my yep. point. And, and you always have to have a certain amount in the tank in order to perform the job. Mm -hmm. It's very clear that you knew that you had to further the, the technology around the ORM, so the operational risk management, enhance the culture that you currently already have within your aviation community. And when you were looking around and trying to see how you would enable the trust, not only of the individuals that you fly with, but also amongst each other, you decided to turn to the technology, but more importantly, Whoop. What was it about the Whoop ecosystem that attracted you as leadership, but more importantly, as an individual that just wants to know how they're doing? Well, one of the, the challenges that you face when you're trying to find something for a military organization is there's a lot of devices out there um, that do a lot of things. And one of the <laughs> things that was uh, useful about the, the product that we ended up with with yours uh, for this study is the things that it doesn't do. So operational security is a big issue, probably the biggest, uh, and our study found basically the, the biggest barrier to acceptance uh, of the technology with our folks is trust and twofold trust. One, do they trust the civilian company that's that's created the device that's running the software? And then do they trust the organizational uh, leadership right. to have access to this data because this is this is an expansive big jump from right. the realm as far as privacy goes for our folks. Right, is it's something that fits within our safety uh, parameters. Listen, mission first always. Yeah, and the the other was from the organizational opsec perspective sure. is you know it's not tracking a lot of other things that we don't need information about. I don't need to necessarily know where you are. I don't need GPS associated with what you're doing. I don't need, I just need the information that's coming basically through those physiological parameters. Right. 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 And it also gives me the ability to de-identify that if, if, and when I need to. So particularly for my study, we were able to disassociate who was wearing what band so that I could just look at them as, you know, not the actual people that were doing it. So for, partially from an academic sense, but again, sure. from building that trust, that first step of like, Hey, you're going to be wearing this thing 24 seven when you're with your wife and your kids and you're, you know, or if you're, you know, one of our younger folks, right, whatever you're doing right. on a weekend, you can trust me to have access to that data and not read into it for anything that doesn't apply to work. Right. right. This is like you said, this is all business and that's where we can start. Well, let's talk about that first because people keep hearing us say this study. Can you just, highlight, oh, yeah, yeah. can you highlight the study and, and talk about what it was? Oh, sure. So it was pretty straightforward. Uh, we took 20 folks uh, and we only gave them a month with a whoop. They had uh, no previous experience of it. It was 20 pilots and air crew. So that's uh, pilots, rescue swimmers and right. flight mechanics. So everybody uh, in that ecosystem that we talked about as far as going out, doing the mission, whether it was the aviators, the rescue guys in, in the back and girls in the back and any subset of the crew, all of them, all 20 of them in some capacity were doing that one job function. And that's mm -hmm. the group that you were looking at. Yes, sir. Okay. Uh, they're all stationed down in uh, Mobile, Alabama. So same place. Okay. We basically led with pre and post surveys, and then we monitored 
their data uh, over the course of just the first month of wearing a wearable device. And the couple of key questions we wanted to look at, in addition to just how how did their you know physiological data change over right. the course of the month? Right, was through that survey information was even over just that first month. Did they have a, a shift in? whether they trusted their intuition whenever they show up to that ORM session, right. whether they just say, Hey, how do I feel? How did I feel when I woke up this morning before right. my first cup of coffee versus what do the numbers on my, on my device tell me? Right. Um, we wanted to know, Hey, is there a shift in that trust even during that first period? Cause we'd seen some studies on that, you know, in broader communities, but we wanted to know specific where an odd idiosyncratious group, you know, a bunch of military right. aviators, right? Sure. We have our own, you know, quirks, uh, so we wanted to know a little bit, hey, would this subgroup of society be any different? Would they would they trust this? Would there be a shift in yep. trust yep. from myself to the device over just that first period? Because there's been a lot of studies that say, that look at, hey, we, we've put a wearable on, a, on these people right. over a prolonged period and they got more sleep and they got more, you know, and it's good information, but they're that first step. So you can yes. correlate all that. Yes. And you can say, hey, they're wearing a device. This must be why they're sleeping like a rock star now. And, you know, their, you know, their mile time is down to six right. minutes. It's got to be because they wore this. Right? right. But we're trying to get to that first step on the stairwell here and look at the acceptance point. Like such a big one is, is it because there's a shift in trust from myself to this device? Right. What the study was, was a policy study. It's right. if there's wearable devices and we can't, if we think we should be using them, how do we use them smartly? How do we put them out there with policy smartly so that people will actually use them in a way that helps them instead of just right. the military way of being like, hey, there's a new technology. Everybody gets it on Tuesday. You better strap this thing on. Figure it fired. out. Figure yeah, it out, right? You know. Yeah, and figure it out. So thank you for that because there's a lot of threads in there that I'm, I'm going to pull on here. I'm going to start with the acceptance piece. What was it about Whoop that they were able to accept and they felt like this is something that is enhancing and enabling? and not collecting and monitoring the performance expectation. So do they trust that the numbers that are coming off of there are actually accurate? That was the, the um, first one that they reported back or that was the, that was actually number two. Yeah. Number two. So the second priority for the users were, can they trust the, the data or the device right. telling them, Hey, you're in the green, you're in the red, right. you're in the yellow. Yep. Interesting. But the, the, the leading, uh, and we've already touched on it, maybe even too much, is uh, privacy concerns. Right. Uh, it, it edged out, barely edged out performance expectation uh, whenever we looked at, uh, at what was important for leading toward acceptance. Right. Like you just asked earlier, this isn't a monitoring device. This is an, an empowering device, right? And so right. that's a fine line there. We are still a military aviation organization. So aviators do have a love-hate relationship with flight surgeons. Can we pull uh, this apart? Because there's going to be yeah. civilians that are listening to this. Yeah, absolutely. And, and and I don't, I don't know if you would attribute or, or kind of relate flight surgeons to kind of HR for, for yep. civilians. Uh, yeah, that's a good way to put it. Maybe. Right? So can you just talk about that so people understand what the relationship is with a flight doc and then oh. potentially doing your mission? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So uh, a flight surgeon is, is periodically, at least every year, so any aviator that, that wants to operate in an aircraft has to... Uh, basically pass the, the poking and prodding to make sure that you're, you passed a, an annual physical. And even before you, you get into military aviation, there's a, there's a big filter there at the beginning where they basically look at you, you know, like your livestock and Hey, or do your eyes work? And there's a myriad of things that if, you know, they're not right on you uh, for good reason, right? Because we talked about earlier, right. Hey, if, if I have a heart condition uh, that I don't even know about, uh, that could be an issue. And I'm, 
the single pilot of a, a helicopter or a jet or, or anything else, you know, it's not just me and the aircraft. If that thing goes down, that's going to go down somewhere. Right. 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 Flight surgeons have the, the unhappy task of being that filter of basically saying like, Hey, uh, I know you love this. I know you want to do it. I know you, you think you're ready, but there is some sort of underlying condition there that makes it so that you're, you're not safe to be that limiting factor uh, in the aircraft. Right. Right. You're um, not that weak link in the aircraft. And I'm the one that's exactly. going to determine that this yes. is, this is something, or you have anything going on that potentially could lead to that moral obligation of standing up and saying, I'm not, a, I'm not good today. Exactly. No. Um, and the challenge with that is, you know, again, a lot of those things that can, can take you out either temporarily or permanently um, from flying. Cause again, not only is this something people do for service, this is, this is their livelihood, right? But even after um, the fact that yes. they leave the coast guard, they could be flying helicopters for whoever. Yep. So it, it is truly could be detrimental to earning a living and mm-hmm. it's a big deal. So just Absolutely. for everybody listening, it, it, it's a, the, the flight surgeon is there to help not hinder. However, right. they take their jobs very seriously. So it's a, it's a big deal. And so with that, the, so the idea of telling, Hey, you know, an air crew, Hey, now potentially give the flight surgeon access to your physiological data 24 seven. And you don't even have to go down to the clinic and have them, you know, put an EKG or a stethoscope on you. Right. You've got some folks that put some pretty colorful comments, uh, in their, in their surveys that said, yeah, you think I'm actually going to trust that guy or that girl? Like, no. But if you can imagine waking up and just loving what you do, a lot of individuals, especially in the aviation community, love to fly. That flight surgeon has a duty to make sure everyone is safe. But Scott, to your point, acceptance of, am I going to let somebody that could take this away from me, my dream job, my dream outcome away from me is a massive leap of faith and trust. Now for everybody listening, let me just talk about uh, a few things that Scott was able to leverage. You know, Whoop Tactical has a very different approach. The enterprise solution for Whoop has the ability to de-identify or anonymize the data for leadership. And so what Scott is referring to is myself or Scott being on the strap He's able to see our trending data. So think HRV, amount of sleep, uh, resting heart rate, truly see if we are ready as a collective, not as an individual, because when Scott as the XO or leadership views the team dashboard or the data, it's anonymized. He doesn't know who is doing what who is, is sleeping three hours versus five hours, but he knows that the 20 individuals on this particular team, how they're trending on a daily basis, whether it's for night operations or daily operations or whatever that may be. Scott, from that perspective, when you were able to, and when you learned that there that we were able to anonymize the data, I think that was one of those moments where it was like, okay, this study is really possible. Well, I think one, it was, it was a little easier through the course of the study, right? Because I had all volunteers. So okay. nobody... Nobody's going to show up and say, Hey, I volunteered for this thing and I'm not wearing it. But, right. You know, so, so I, I already had a bit of a biased group. I think the, the really the key there was once we looked at the data afterward and once we saw some of these perspectives and we started to look at, you know, some of the previous research about like, Hey, well, one, we saw the shift. We did actually see, go ahead and, and reference, we did see that shift. Uh, from, what did you see? And you're saying you saw the shift. What was that the shift, shift? The trust shift uh, over that 30 days. Slightly, people are mean basically. People were slightly more prone to trust their intuition uh, at the beginning of the study, and over just 30 days, by the end of the, this very you know pretty short period, uh, we had shifted to the point where the majority our, our means shifted over to the other side. People were more so trusting the data that came from the device as far as making their ORM decision. So we were asking right. them, "Hey, day one, I wake up, how I feel is how I feel. I don't care what this thing says." 
by day 30, they were like, hey, I might feel a little tired. I, I at least want to validate that with some numbers. You said something really critical that I, I want to come back to. You said that within a very short period of time, from day one to day 30, there was this shift. Hey, subjectively, self-reporting, this is how I feel day one. And by day 30, they were very much trusting and accepting of the fact they would wake up in the morning, look at the Whoop dashboard on the phone, and be able to know within five minutes how ready they were for the day. Did you actually see the cultural shift of, I'm not really sure if I trust this device, and did you see the acceptance happening in the four weeks that you were running the study? Physically, uh, again, we tried not to interact too much because the last thing I wanted to do was was, was, you know, taint the study with, you know, uh, I didn't want to be a, a wearable hype man. Right, whole, this right. was one of the unique things was like, it was really fire and forget. So it was, okay. Hey, here's your thing. Uh, there's no instructions. There's no mandate. You don't even have to wear the thing. Like, right. uh, we didn't tell people, Hey, you have to wear it 24 seven, but we just said, Hey, here's a device. Uh, see if it works for you. Okay. And that was the interesting thing was by and large with the exception of, of one person that I think just had a battery, uh, issue that they created for themselves for a couple of days. Right. Everybody wrote out 30 days because they, they wanted, you know, you know, it, uh, air crew are, are, like you said, people are people, right? Right. Uh, this, this may be a device that was originally made for athletes, but in the tactical application, it's the same thing. People will get, I don't want to say addicted, but people really want to know more of what there is to know. They want to turn, they want to turn, you know, known unknowns into known. Once the acceptance piece happens, the value that the whoop strap provides on a daily basis is critical to the individuals knowing. I would rather know than not know. I would rather know if I'm correct, thinking about the past, present, and future correctly, or if I'm thinking about it incorrectly, past, present, and future. And I want everybody to hear this because this is something that we really need to start talking more about. And Scott, I'm interested in your thoughts here and how you've digested this is when they started interacting with the red, yellows and greens, did they give you feedback on, oh, this is what green feels like? This is what true readiness feels like from a physiological standpoint. Not only am I having this life-saving piece of equipment track this, but I'm actually feeling it now and I'm correlating what subjectively, what I'm self-reporting as I'm ready today versus I'm not as ready or I'm not ready at all. Did you guys talk about that at all? And how was that talked about, you know, within, within the group of 20? The interesting thing, uh, within our risk management realm, we do a lot of, you know, the, the GAR model, the green, amber, red. Can you, can you Uh, talk a little bit about that? Sure. So so basically any aspect of that, that pre mission discussions, uh, you have to frame it somehow. Right. And so a lot of those things will be, Hey, you know, are we, are we in the green, which is low risk? Are we in the amber, which is some moderate risk? Right. Or are we in the red, which is high risk? Right. Right. So, so there was some cultural shift there for folks that are like, well, this, does this green, amber and red on the device mean like, if I'm in the red, I'm high risk. Right. And like you just said, right. like the goal isn't to, to judge it's to know, right? Exactly. This is just objective data. You have to take, just like we do with the rest of risk management, and I think our folks were kind of pre-loaded and knew, understood how to do that is you take the emotion out of, yes. you know, I'm, I'm not sad because, or I'm not disappointed in myself because I didn't get enough sleep last night. I just didn't get enough sleep last night. Right. right? That doesn't make me a bad person. It just means I'm, I'm tired today. Right. If, if I'm not recovered, you know, it doesn't mean, you know, it, it might mean that I just trained really hard yesterday. That's like you said, that could be a good thing. Right. It just, it's, 
more information to feed. And the thing that we kept coming back to, and then I kept coming back to even post-study with discussions, both with the folks in the field and and some of the folks that uh, participate in the study, is that it's easy to get upset. I don't want to say obsessed, but it's easy to over-focus on the information. It's, you know, the do I do I need to set parameters on a twenty percent recovery? Where should we draw a line? Uh, right. Are people not allowed to fly at night below twenty? And, and you can get overly focused on the data and make that seem like the end. Right. Whereas it's really just to me because the goal in all of this is behavior change. You know, wait, is my recovery score? Is that just my HRV? You know, is one? What is HRV? Why do I care? Right. You know. Uh, right. Wait, does this affect how tired I am? Like, right. oh, what wait, is, this, what does you know, this mean? How do these things actually play? You know, things that you know people tend to think about, but once they realize, like you said, the value, then they start to think, man, is this glass of wine uh, before dinner really affecting my recovery score? Hundred percent. It once you start having something where you can look at the performance of the machine, right? You want to fine tune it, the human machine, and you want to exactly. fine tune it. That is when you know. You've had that positive behavioral cultural shift of maybe not many, but even if you did that year over year with just 10% of your organization, three years in, and again, we're just talking about 30 days here, not even oh, you know six months, 12 months, which we usually do, you have a different organization. And that is critical to readiness, preparedness, and willingness. On that, as leadership, how did you start looking at the data from an educational aspect, from a leadership standpoint? The real aha moment wasn't. So it wasn't necessarily the education. What are the specifics? What's the difference between heart rate variability and, you know, what are my sleep phases? Right. Things like that. Those right. are the discussions that were really kind of going on uh, internally within sure. the group. Sure. And that's the that's the next phase of study for us, right? So if we look at the uh, policy-wise, how do we borrow some terms? That's the gardening, right? Right. That's right. The th- one of the things we looked at as far as that acceptance piece uh, was a unique thing within aviation safety culture. One thing that was interesting was people were more concerned with the organization having access to their data than they were the the civilian company. The company. So, so and just we, to we highlight that, right? Just to highlight that the individuals in this Coast Guard study were not as concerned as Whoop, the organization or the company having the data. It was Scott as leadership or the boss, if you will, having that data. The way that we get around that is anonymizing the data to ensure that you know individual data is protected, but at the same time, somebody like Scott can use that trend analysis to drive better decision-making. Was it for you, was that that aha moment is they were okay with Whoop having the information because they trusted the brand, they, they understand the value at that point, but they were still like, ah, Scott, we don't know. Well, it was, the, it was because it paralleled so well into there's a thing in aviation safety called privilege. Mm-hmm. Um, so similar, similar people think of it as a legal term, right? Um, so anytime there's a, a mishap in aviation, uh, there's there's two investigations. There's two things that go on. One is right. the safety professionals want to find out what happened down to the root cause so we right. can stop it from happening again. Right. Lawyers and administrative people will want to find out what happened for other reasons, right? right. And so there, there's protections in place so that safety folks can actually get to the root cause and get people to feel safe and open up and talk to them and trust them. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that information can't be used on that other side. So you, you can really silo that information. Um, and so one of the policy things we looked at was, Hey, within the organization, not just by anonymizing it within the civilian company, but within to, to help people be willing to open up to the, yes. the, the benefit that this can provide yes. 
as simple, seemingly simple until, you know, lawyers will obviously be involved thing that a tool that already exists is could we pre pre apply the concept of privilege to this information and say, Hey, if you are willing to use this device to get this information, because we know this, this is going to make people safer. Could we basically, this information can't be used administratively or anything. So, you know, had a late night last night, something completely unrelated happens during a flight. You're, you don't have to worry about the fact that, you know, your two-year-old waking you up, even though it was unrelated, is somehow going to administratively get you in trouble, right. you know, when, when an aircraft breaks. And Scott, you're, you're highlighting something that most organizations on the DOD and federal side do is say, mm-hmm. listen, this piece of equipment, it's not going to be used against you because you're trusting the data and it's making you a better human. Right. There has to be that give and take. And I'm not a policy guy, and I think, you know, it's way above both of our pay grades, even though I don't have one anymore. However, it's nothing that we don't know. It's, Mm -hmm. I love my dream job. I want to protect my dream job, but I want to know and be empowered to make the right decisions because we're trying to drive positive behavioral change. And I think that's really, really critical, especially from somebody like you in the XO seat saying, I'm completely okay with that because, again, I would rather my people have access to know then not know without judgment, red, green, or yellow isn't a judgment thing. It is just truly is. This is where you sit for a readiness standpoint. And you know what? If something goes sideways, whether it's in training or real world, we're not going to use that against you. I think that's a strong statement. And I'm hoping, I'm hoping that, you know, whether it's privilege or any other type of something similar to that, wearable technology will not be used against the service member or federal employee because it is a piece of equipment that is enhancing, enabling, and hopefully saving the individual's life on a daily basis. 100%. It's just finding any barrier that you can to remove. Let's just figure out how to get rid of it. When you saw the acceptance and the value, now you have 20 folks, you know, probably talking about, you know, HRV or, or, or REM. For you, from a cultural aspect, what has WHOOP done just for you and these 20 individuals post-study? What this does is pre, pre-wearable. We have briefings, you know, we probably know more about fatigue as it affects human physiology right. uh, than your average bear, right? Sure. Um, so, so aviators sit through, you know, your a- annual PowerPoint. Uh, they're going to tell you about, hey, if you're, if you're on six hours of sleep, you might as well be drunk. Right. If you, sure. you know, and you learn all of these, all of these things, you know, whether, you know, that gets into the culture, whether people internalize that and really use it is, is one thing, but whenever, whenever the numbers are coming to you and they're personal every day. Mm-hmm. Uh, it creates a, a personal investment. I love is, that. I see folks that are asking me and they go, well, well, that's interesting. And, you know, what does, what does that mean? Right. Right. And so it, it opens another door toward education where people actually kind of yes. care. Yes. Right. Yes. Uh, people want to invest in that versus, Hey, I'm sitting through another, another PowerPoint during my, my annual training. And you're telling me at the same time, you know, yeah, get plenty of sleep, wear uh, protective equipment when right. you mow the lawn, right. you know, don't add or subtract to the population, all that stuff. Right. Um, it it creates some impersonal investment. So I don't want to speak for you, but I, I would imagine you're driving towards a more resilient force. Would, would you say that's accurate? Well, absolutely. Like if, if you take any group, right, and you can force feed them information or you can have them seeking it, uh, which one would you rather have, right? Seeking hundred um, percent all day long. Exactly. Day. Right? right. You actually, have, people are going to become better at right. what they do. Right. And, and becoming better isn't just learning the aircraft or learning the rules or learning things like, like we said, if you can, that weakest link, if you can improve that, 
for very little financial investment compared to upgrading an aircraft. You Appreciate can you. really move well that weapon system, the people, the machine, right? everything that's connected to the it whole ecosystem. And right. that is, man, I, I, I really, I love the fact that you recognize that because you have to enable the individual and get them exactly to the point where they are continually ready. And that's right. going to have to throttle up and throttle down based on the mission. Sometimes you have to be very soft and strategic and slow versus being aggressive, fast and loud. And that is a part of your, your mission set, especially with, you know, the aviation community within the Coast Guard that you guys are doing. It's all, it's everything. You have to be a jack of all trades. And I wouldn't say a master of none, but even worse, you have to, you can't miss because people right. are relying on you on, on, a, on a daily basis to, to get it done, whether it's in training or real world. So I appreciate you seeing the value there and highlighting that. What would you like to see from you as leadership as an XO? But more importantly, for you talking to young aviators out there, what would you say? Because again, the aviator community, just like a bunch of others, kind of pride themselves on lack of sleep, the ability to callous themselves and be like, I'm, I'm ready to push. Really, I guess I'm asking you, you know, if the knowledgeable you now could go back and talk to yourself 10 years ago, what would, what would that sound like now? Ooh, uh, <laughs> I got there eventually. I, I find, yeah, I, I well, got there. Well, I think the, the thing that I would need, and, and I think the, the next step that, that we really recommended out of the study yeah. was we got a little bit of a, we got a snapshot of the fact that even though we have policy in place, even though we say this is our priority, when we looked at the sleep data mm-hmm. of the 20 people, we weren't sleeping as much as we should. Okay. So just stop there. You weren't sleeping yeah. as much as you should. Was that acknowledged? Uh, and I don't know if you know this from the subjective standpoint because of the questionnaires. Was that acknowledged by your the folks in in the study? No, it, we we wanted to keep that uh, objective. Okay. In that sense. Right. So, so right. we kept that as, hey, we don't want to ask you because if I ask you how much are you sleeping, you might right. sleep more just so that- Just so you skew. Got it. Just so you skew it, right? Right, right. right. Uh, so we, did, we didn't tell them that we were necessarily going to- fairly intuitive if you right. thought about the sure. fact that you're wearing something, but, but most of our people were sleeping six hours and change the mean, uh, for the study. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas, you know, scientifically that's a little light, that's a little light, especially right. for somebody that has a moral obligation to be rested. Right? right. And then some of our folks, some of them had, uh, three folks averaged less than six hours for 30 days. And so what that says is, Hey, we have policies in place. We say sleep is a priority, mm-hmm. uh, not to just focus too much on sleep. We could really stand to do this on a much larger scale and say, you know, with just a, another voluntary program, Let's get some good numbers on our whole aviation community. How well is the current policy working? Was that a shock to you on around the numbers of around the sleep? Um, sadly, no. Yeah, fair right? enough. I mean, I would have hoped. Right. You know, I would have been excited if it, the numbers were higher. I got a two-year-old man. Like right. I know, I know how things work. If I could go back and get data, the data I would get is what I think we should get next. Is is a good next step would be a, uh, some sort of voluntary program where we can track this over a, a prolonged period, not just 30 days, but something longer with a much larger sample across the service and kind of just get that snapshot because one that will get that information out, out there that right. lets your, your early folks try this out and see if it, if it provides them value. Uh, and two, it answers some of that Remember, uh, like you said at the beginning, right? Some Simon, uh, so next step, yeah, it gets right. back to why. Like, right. why do we even? Why do I even need or I, I get plenty of sleep. No, that. No, you don't, dude. Right, man. I love how you're thinking about that. I agree. I think there's so many other things that you can look at when it comes to performance, both mentally and physically. However, right. everybody sleeps. Everybody understands sleep. 
And it's a really yeah. great place to start for anybody coming into the, to the Whoop ecosystem to just understand, okay, everything happens when I am sleeping, whether I like it or not, I'm yep. recovering or I'm not recovering. This is, this is where it happens. To that, you're driving a really great point is if we knew and the Coast Guard knew how people were really sleeping, just the amount of sleep that was being had, I think that would be so eye-opening to understand, okay, even if we added a half an hour to those numbers, it would completely change. I suspect performance outputs, injuries, paperwork around, you know, just the silly things, people slip and fall. Uh, now all, you're all, pandering to me as an XO. Not I get, to, if I can get rid of paperwork, I'm in, right? <laughs> right. Well, the short answer is absolutely. Right. Um, and I think if nothing else, uh, I think the pandemic's helped that, right? I agree. Uh, there's silver linings from that. People want to know now. Uh, people want to know more about themselves. They want to know how they can protect themselves, being the best, set themselves up in the best situation, especially folks that are that are in, uh, especially in the tactical world, right. <laughs> your military, law enforcement, folks like that, they're, they're, they're personally invested in making sure, you know, organizationally and culturally, we're, we're looking around every corner for where can we get information to make our crews that much safer. Uh, I think right. culturally in aviation, we've been there for a long time. Like I said, we knew, we know fatigue is a thing. We know, Absolutely. you know, you want to be ready. Yep. We were in our culture. I think we were really just waiting for the technology. Once this right. became uh, available and more more mainstream and more accessible, I think that was really <clears throat> the limiting factor in our world. Uh, and then culturally outside, it was actually interesting to see. We, we were a little bit divided uh, on some of those privacy issues whenever really? we broke it over age demographics. Huh. Uh, so our, our younger folks, our 20 to 29-year-olds, were, were significantly less concerned on both the military and civilian side of, of who necessarily had access to that information. Now, some of that might be, you know, you got your gruff old, you know, uh, 40-something, you know, has bred enough cynicism into the sure, sure. to know, hey, I need to, you know, I need to guard every bit of information I can. Right. But also, you know, that's a generation line right it there. Is. So th- th- these is. are some folks that grew up, you know, sharing a lot of information about, you know, they were Instagramming every meal they've had since mm-hmm. they were like 16, probably, right? There's some cultural generational shifts there that are just going to happen over time as well. And we're already seeing them as the, the younger part of our right. workforce, you know, makes its way in and, and the rest of us, uh, old folks, uh, find our way onto greener pastures. So we've, uh, we've seen that across the board, especially inside of the Department of Defense is once leadership sees the, the capabilities of anonymizing data and seeing trend analysis and actually understanding what night flights for a week does to their crews. And then they switch back to days and how, you know, recovery may go down or, or sleep quality may go down and how to mitigate that over the long term is extremely valuable to them. So um, that's that's how we usually get the older folks because of, of how we can carve up the data for their better decision making process. And like and you said, as an XO, if that's less paperwork for you, we uh, we made your life a little bit easier, which is the end goal, obviously. Well, Scott, as, as we get ready to wrap things up here, I wanted to say thank you for coming to Whoop. You're the first DOD type study to really focus on technology and the acceptance of the use of it. The only limiting factor was the ease and use of the technology. Now that it's in place, let's learn and understand and make smarter decisions. So I appreciate you pioneering that, especially in the Coast Guard, because you were the first one in the Coast Guard to reach out to Whoop and say, hey, this is something that we want to pull apart. And you did it. We get contacted all the time, but the follow through is not easy, as you know. So thank you for that, because we're excited to, to highlight this. And, and we'll be talking about this through, throughout 2022, because the study that you did was truly insightful around trust, community, 
but most importantly, you know, the self-education on both the leadership side and, and individual side. So super exciting. And, and we, we appreciate that. So thank you. No, thank you guys for, uh, for one, being easy to work with, uh, <laughs> being patient with the government process. It helps that you, you come from that world. Yeah, it's definitely, you know, a collective effort here and we're all pushing and rowing in the same direction and we're just trying to, you know, better the force. So I appreciate that. Thank you again. We don't take that lightly. So we appreciate no. it. No, like I said, thank you guys for finding the time and for working with us. Absolutely. Uh, it, it definitely wasn't something we could do on our own without some some good guidance and, uh, and, uh, and folks that we're easy to work with. All right. A big thank you to Scott Austin of the United States Coast Guard for joining me this week on the WHOOP podcast. If your organization is a federal or Department of Defense entity and you're interested in performance, optimization or resilience, please visit WHOOP.com forward slash government. And if you enjoyed this episode of the Whoop podcast, be sure to leave a rating or a review. It's a great way to share your feedback and to help others find out about the Whoop podcast. Also on social, if you're using social platforms, check out the handle at Whoop and also at Will Ahmed. That's W-I-L-L-A-H-M-E-D. And of course, don't forget to get 15% off a Whoop membership by using the code WILL, that's W-I-L-L, over at Whoop.com. I'm Robert Moeller. Thanks so much for listening. See you guys next week.